Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the gospel singer, Sister Rosetta Tharp. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. There's going to be mentions of slavery and discussions of racism and segregation in the USA, as well as the use of outdated language regarding African-American people in quotes. Um, There's also a couple of mentions of domestic violence, the loss of a limb, and deaths in a fire, including the deaths of children. So if any of that sounds like something you don't want to hear, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other content. Before we get started, I also wanted to mention our sponsor for this episode, Studio Sweden. Studio makes quality headphones. They are beautiful and they have excellent sound quality. I don't think I'm going to be able to use $5 headphones again, but that's okay. Uh, So I would encourage you to go to their website, which is studio.com, S-U-D-I-O.com, to check them out. You can also use the promo code Queer as Fact, so that's all one word, Queer as Fact, to get 15% off there. Additionally, I just feel like you should all know that, as you can hear, we're all sick, especially me. The others might be able to fake it, but I'm not doing a great job. So just bear with the fact that I sound like I'm dying. <laughs> so Rosetta's born on the 20th of March in 1915 in the small town of Cotton Plant in Arkansas. Her parents were Katie and Willis Atkins. When Rosetta was six, Katie left Willis, took Rosetta, and took to the road as a traveling evangelist, eventually winding up in Chicago. We don't really know Katie's motivations for leaving Willis. Rosetta's biographer Gail Wald suggests that even at age six, Rosetta was already showing enough musical promise that Katie saw the opportunity to make a living off her skills touring. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, she was a musical prodigy as a child. Okay, I was because I was going to ask more about like her mother being able to leave her husband and like make a living doing this yeah. thing, actually. Like, that sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah, so from what I could gather, and I was a bit confused when I was reading this about like how you could actually make money off that, yeah. but from what I can gather, it was just like preaching in churches and the money from the offering plate in the church would be given to, if a travelling preacher came to preach that week or a travelling oh, musician okay. came that week, they would get the money. That's nice. And that was how yeah. they were supporting yeah. themselves. There's yeah. a bunch of those like interesting ways that you know, like women and other disadvantaged people have found to make a living. And it's always interesting to Mm. hear about them in various periods of history. Yeah, I thought that was also interesting because another reason that Gail Wald mentioned of why Katie left Willis to do this is because apparently, and I'm not sure of the details of this, a married woman couldn't be a traveling evangelist. Oh, okay. But an unmarried woman could, and so she had to leave her husband to do it. Oh, so they're like officially divorced? or she was sort of left and was like, do you see a husband? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> well, not I guess there isn't one. <laughs> it's not clear if they were ever officially married. Oh, okay. All she right. took his surname and they had a kid together. Okay. But, but it I was don't... more of a like de facto relationship. Yeah, I don't yeah. think there's a record of a wedding between them. Okay, well, that makes things easier. Yeah. From a very young age, Rosetta was performing alongside her mother. So her mother was also a musician. She played the piano and the harmonium. And so from a very young age, Rosetta was performing alongside Katie. She'd later tell the story of when she was six, being lifted up to sit on top of the piano in church so people could see her while she played her guitar. Aww. I love to picture the guitar being, like, way bigger than her. <laughs> That's what I was about to say. It's everything I read seemed to suggest that she just always played an adult-sized guitar. Yeah. <laughs> Even from age six. So. I mean, I don't feel like child guitars would have been, like... I don't know. I yeah. feel like child guitars are kind of hard to find now. Yeah, yeah. You know? I like, don't feel like they were a thing that was just around in 1920. Yeah. But yeah. playing the guitar with small hands is so hard. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she was probably playing single notes at that stage. She also know. used to... Children s- doing anything musical is impressive. True. Yeah. yeah. She also used to sit on her mum's knee and play the right hand of songs while her mum played the left hand. Oh, That's so cute. Very cute. So Katie and Rosetta's church that Katie was an evangelist for is called the Church of God in Christ. And just a disclaimer, I tried my best to research what exactly the Church of God in Christ is, but researching like different denominations of churches and how they're different is very hard. And I apologize if I get anything wrong. I won't go into too much detail. That's also just a very generic name. Like I imagine Googling the Church of God in Christ <laughs> isn't like one Google hit. Yeah. yeah. And there's also like multiple churches of God in Christ that had like split off, but both kept the name. Yeah. Like, oh God, really? Stuff. Okay. Yeah. So it was pretty fraught. <laughs> But, yeah, the Church of God in Christ is a Pentecostal church. So Pentecostalists believe broadly in people having a very close personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. So they're the sort of churches where you see people doing things like speaking in tongues because the Holy Spirit has come to them and is speaking through them and that kind of thing. 
I finally understand why this happens. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's about. So that's as much information as I have about the Church of God in Christ. In Chicago, where Katie and Rosetta settled for a while, and I guess more generally, the Church of God in Christ was mainly known for two things. The first thing is its emphasis on what they called clean living. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's like no alcohol, no smoking, no gambling. All right. That but- was like a less suspicious sounding thing that I expected <laughs> clean living to be. <laughs> well, it also extends to no theater, no film, no social dancing, no secular music. Okay, guys. So like, it's pretty intense. Yeah. So Rosetta grew up in her home without a record player or a radio or anything like that. So like music you do yourself is fine, but like the radio isn't fine. You performing religious music is fine, but if oh, you're okay. listening to the radio or going to the theater, you're going to see secular music. That's not okay. fine. All right. Yeah. Got it. So the Church of God in Christ was very well known for their religious music. To quote one of the elders of the church, which Rosetta and her mum went to in Chicago, the devil should not be allowed to keep all this good rhythm. (laughs) (laughs) So the Church of God in Christ is a working class black church and it incorporates a lot of kind of everyday instruments into its music. So things like guitar, which we've mentioned, tambourine and trumpet. And it also draws heavily from music styles, which have their roots in slavery and in African music. So blues and work songs and things like that which weren't at that time being used as much or as like directly in more middle-class black churches, which might have been trying to distance themselves from that part of their past. So it's time for us to listen to some gospel music now. Oh, good, I'm ready. Yeah. So I just want to play you an example of like the sort of gospel music that was heard in other more middle-class black churches versus the sort of gospel music that was heard in the Church of God in Christ. All this stuff was recorded a bit later on in the period I'm talking about. So these recordings are from the 1940s, but it still gives you an idea. Yeah, so this is the song Didn't It Rain, performed by the Roberta Martin singers. Roberta Martin was from a Baptist church, so a different church. Now didn't it rain, children talk about rain all my Lord. Didn't it rain, didn't it rain, didn't it all my Lord. And this is Rosetta performing the same song. So that's the difference in Church of God and Christ music versus... Are there ever choirs in Church of God and Christ music or like that kind of more lower class, working class Um, church? I'm not entirely clear. It seems like from what I was reading about, because I was reading about Rosetta and her mother traveling around and performing, I was reading about times when there was like a soloist coming to perform, but I don't know if that was kind of the norm or if there was also times when just a choir was singing. Reasonable. I'm not sure. Because even that like creates quite a different sort of feel. Feeling, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So as Rosetta got older and her musical skill grew, she dropped out of school and began touring and performing full-time with her mother. So has she been taught by her mother? Yeah. Okay. I'm not aware of her having any other teachers. She might have had a piano teacher at one point, but she's largely self-taught and taught by her mother. Okay. Her school friends who remember going to elementary school with her don't remember her moving up into junior high school with them. Okay. So she dropped out of school quite young. Yeah. And started touring full-time, and that's what she did for all her teen years, basically. And during this time, she met the Church of God in Christ preacher Thomas J. Tharp, or Tommy. We don't know much about their relationship or how they met, but on November 17th, 1934, so when Rosetta was 19, Rosetta and Tommy got married. Is he about the same age? I don't know. I okay, know nothing fine. about okay. him. <laughs> We have a sometimes where we have a man essentially show up to give them the surname that they're known by. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, bye. Yeah. Yeah. Tommy's here. He has the surname Thorpe. Yeah. He's, that's all we know. Okay. I and mean, then we know a little bit more. They did actually stay married for a while. Okay. So they based themselves out of Miami and they kept touring together. Tommy would preach and Rosetta would perform. Ira Tucker Jr., who knew Rosetta well later in her life, says Tommy saw her as a meal ticket and that Rosetta thought of it as a business arrangement. And Ira Tucker makes this statement about pretty much all of the men in Rosetta's life. He sees her relationships with men as basically something she saw as just convenient to her business and her protection of having a man in her life and stuff like that. So what are they bringing to her business that isn't just the protection of having a man around? Well, I think it's just the fact that he preaches Whereas she only performs music, so okay. they're probably more appealing to a church if they come and say, hey, oh, okay. I'll preach and she sings. 
Are they? Didn't you tell me before that only unmarried women are allowed to become travelling? Travelling evangelists. So Rosetta's just performing. Her mother was the one doing the evangelising. Ah, okay. okay. Sorry if I didn't make that clear. Rosetta just does the music. Okay. And you're allowed to show up and play music. And anyone can show up and play music, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Because she definitely keeps touring once she's married. So by this time, in the next few years as she's married to Tommy, Rosetta had become nationally renowned within her church. And then when Reverend Amaziah Melvin Cohen of the Miami Church, which she attended, began broadcasting the church services on white radio stations, she became renowned outside of the church as well. And people of many different races and religions started attending the Miami Church to hear Rosetta perform. Reverend Amaziah's cousin Ziola remembers this time as being like quite uncomfortable because what was a religious service to the people in the church, mm. other people who weren't part of that religion were coming in to just basically see it's a concert. Yeah. Yeah, I can see how that would be uncomfortable. Yeah, and they were paying, so the church started charging entrance fees to people who weren't part of the congregation, and that money went towards renovations and starting a college fund, but it was still kind of a weird vibe, I think. Yeah. And this is something that we'll see throughout Rosetta's life and that's a major tension in her life is kind of when it's appropriate for non-African-American people to enjoy African-American religious music just Mm -hmm. as a secular entertainment. Mm. So as you both predicted, Rosetta and Tommy's marriage didn't last. I'm shocked. Ziola, who I mentioned a second ago, says, I knew how he would beat her, but she loved him. Oh, dear. Oh. Yeah, but... Obviously, she moved on from that. And in 1938, she left Tommy and with her mother, Rosetta, moved to New York, where she began to pursue a recording career. According to Ziola, Rosetta was seduced by, quote, the money and promises of the white people who came to her Miami church. In New York, Rosetta signed a recording contract with a record company called Decca Records, and she was the first gospel artist they'd ever signed. Her first hit was a song called Rock Me, which was a gospel song. So it was a gospel song that she herself didn't write. It was already a known gospel song. Mm. But when she performed it, she changed the lyrics to appeal to a wider secular audience. So she took out the explicit mentions of Jesus and stuff like that. Can we hear the song? Sure. She recorded it several times and later on she recorded it with Jesus again. So you have to find the right recording. The fact that you said recorded it with Jesus made me imagine her and Jesus like jamming in the studio. That's right. I'm picturing Jesus playing the sax. (laughs) I, I think that's picturing... a good look on Jesus. I was picturing Jesus on tambourine. <laughs> now, won't you hear me swinging? Hear the words that I'm singing. Mudge my soul with water from on high. So yeah, in that first line you heard where she says, won't you hear me swinging? The original was, won't you hear me singing? She changed it to swinging because she thought that would be more appealing to a general audience. I mean, as swing was big at the time. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Rosetta went on to sing songs that were purely secular, that had no gospel roots. How did she feel about that? The Church of God in Christ was not about that. Yeah, um, we don't really know how Rosetta herself felt. So some people seem to think that it was a part of her contract. In order to get a recording contract, she was just kind of forced to agree to sing whatever they wanted her to sing. Rosetta, so she went on to sing in nightclubs as well. She sang at the Cotton Club. I don't know if we mentioned that in our Josephine episode, but Josephine yeah. also sang at the Cotton Club. But yeah, she went on to sing at nightclubs. And she explained in one radio interview, quote, that her mission is to save souls and that she sings in a nightclub because she feels that there are more souls in the nighteries that need saving than there are in the church. Nighteries. Nighteries. <laughs> I love outdated <laughs> words. Um, I'm going to the nightery right. tonight. So is that true? I don't know. Does that line up with? Um, yeah. Yeah. So she also later did tell Ziola, who we've mentioned a few times, that, quote, one of the worst things I did was to leave the church. Okay. Quote. So it always stays important to her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the church definitely stays important to her throughout her life, and she does, we'll see, go back to singing mm-hmm. just gospel later on. So I think the explanation that she just kind of had to do this to start a career makes sense. Yeah. Uh, do we know anything about what her community thought of her going off and singing less religious music? Yes, they were pretty appalled by it. All right, I'm unsurprised. Yeah. Um, one, there's a quote I have here from one of her friends in Chicago, Elva Roberts, who said, when I heard her, I said, my goodness, you mean she's going to the world playing music like the world music? <laughs> the world music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of them ostracized her. And Ira Tucker Jr., who I mentioned, said they viewed it almost like a death. 
What about her mother? Her Is mo- her mother around? Still? Her mother's still around. Okay. Yeah, her mother moved to New York with her when she right. left Tommy. Yes. And her mother doesn't seem to have approved all that much. So her mother was still, like, not letting her have a radio in the home. So she yep. couldn't listen to secular music in her home or anything. But her mother continues to support her and will come and, like, be okay. backstage with her and stuff like that, even though she doesn't truly approve okay. of her choices. Well, I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah, that's, like, yeah. fairly good parenting. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted her to have, like, a good relationship with someone. Yeah, no, her, her mother's good. Yes. Her mother's good. I think I, they have a good relationship. I'm glad. Yeah, regardless of the reactions by her community within the church, her fame grew rapidly. Many of her white audience members had never heard gospel music before, and they really loved her and loved hearing this new genre of music. And she toured throughout the USA and also a little bit in Canada. Her guitar skills were particularly impressive, and one of the notable things about her was most people played guitar as a rhythm instrument at the time, so just chords to accompany their singing, and she played it the way... She fully shredded. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the reason for that is playing acoustic guitar in somewhere like her church, playing chords, like, died away very quickly in Uh a big space with a large group of people and they couldn't really be heard, but plucking continuous notes created a more continuous sound. Okay. So that was a new and exciting thing. Guitar just as a rhythm instrument is so weird to me. Because normally, like, when I've been in bands and things, it's like, well, we have to showcase this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But it was definitely more, the, I guess what we think of it, you hear in, like, folk music, where somebody's yeah. just, like, strumming guitar. Yeah. Or when mm-hmm. someone's playing Wonderwall, when they're not very good at the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. So um, I definitely have Wonderwall in my head now, so thank you. Don't worry, I'll play you more gospel soon. I thought you were going to say you were going to play us Wonderwall. And I was like, what possible justification do you have for that? It turns out that Rosetta Tharp wrote Wonderwall and what Oasis stole just it. stole it. <laughs> so yeah, Alfred Miller, who was the musical director of the Church of God in Christ in Brooklyn, said about her guitar skills, she could do runs, she could do sequences, she could do arpeggios, she could put the guitar behind her and play it. She could Oh, wow, really? She could sit on the floor and play it. She could lay down and play it. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> she was very impressed. She's just a rock star. Yeah, she's absolutely and... just a rock star. But they haven't invented rock stars yet. Oh, no, um, Rosetta. Ahead of your time. Yeah. <laughs> they also haven't invented the electric guitar yet. She's doing this on an acoustic guitar. That, okay. But, like, the electric guitar is coming. Okay, good. I was going to ask. Yeah, no, no. Like Man, I, I imagine the first time she, like, played a chord on the electric guitar, she was like, whoo. Yeah. <laughs> I can do things with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She also did a very good job of establishing herself as a successful woman within a male-dominated industry. Guitar was basically a male instrument at the time. Like, women just didn't really play guitar. Hmm. Ella Mitchell, who's another gospel musician who knew Rosetta, remembers Rosetta getting male guitarists up on stage with her and challenging them to guitar battles, basically. <laughs> She'd play something and be like, can you play that? And then she'd be like, nah, mine was better. You couldn't really play that. I, wow. So I just I just want to think of, like, the devil went down to Georgia. <laughs> yeah, basically but with that. the guitar. Yeah, but with the guitar. As Rosetta became more successful and more confident in her musical skills, she decided in 1943, so after five years of having a like secular music career, to return to a solely gospel career. I'm glad she felt like she was able to do that now. Yeah. 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 She later explained in an interview, I sang the blues, but God didn't like that, and I stopped. All right, well, that's fairly straightforward. <laughs> yeah, yep. that's pretty straightforward. Rosetta went back to gospel music, and a lot of her secular fans who'd discovered her when she was singing secular songs followed her back to gospel music and continued listening to her and her move back to gospel also gained her more listeners from within the church and so this was one of the most successful points of her career in 1944 she recorded the biggest hit of her career a song called strange things happening every day which is considered one of the first ever rock and roll songs oh really so i think we should listen to some of it she invented rock and roll too that's the the premise of rosetta tharp cool i know nothing about this woman oh okay yeah, she invented rock and roll. Cool. She invented being a rock star by inventing rock and roll and then becoming a star of it. <laughs> okay. So now she's invented rock and roll. All right, well, she can go home then. Yeah, she can go She's yeah. contributed enough. Yep. Around the same time she recorded this song, a little bit earlier... Rosetta filed for divorce against Tommy and married another man called Fock Pershing Allen. What? 
Oh, yeah. What's Fox, his first name? F-O-C-H. Okay. Pershing, P-E-R-S-H-I-N-G. Okay. Alan. Right. Alan. Okay. All right, that's his name. Cool. You described it correctly. <laughs> that's his name. Once again, we know essentially nothing about Falk. And by January 1946, three years later, Rosetta was filing for divorce from Falk. It um, better have been good to her. I have a quote from her about why she divorced him, which she said in the divorce court. She explained, He didn't ever appreciate anything I do, and come on my job and he would just argue all the time. Mm. And this is a common problem for women pursuing careers in gospel, generally. Yeah. Is constantly having to fight against husbands who don't want them to have careers, basically. A few months after she filed for divorce from Falk, Rosetta went to a concert at Harlem's Golden Gate Auditorium, where for the first time she had another gospel performer whose name was Marie Knight. Are they going to date? No spoilers, Irene. Yes. <laughs> um, according to people who knew her at the time, Marie was incredibly attractive. Okay. Whenever we introduce someone, I immediately point out how attractive they are. <laughs> <laughs> They're the love interest. That's how Maybe it is. Maybe so. Now you've discerned that she's a love interest. Yeah. Let's have a bit of background on Marie. So... She was about 10 years younger than Rosetta, so she's in her early 20s. Rosetta's by now in her early 30s. Yeah. But she had a quite similar life story. She'd been singing and playing the piano in the Church of God and Christ since she was young enough that they had to lift her up onto a table to be seen while she sang. She'd done some touring as a religious singer, and then she'd settled down in New Jersey where she was married to a man named Alfred Knight. Don't know anything about Alfred. He's just here to bring the surname. He brings the surname. Marie described their courtship. She said, I met him Monday and married him Thursday real quick. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay, Marie. That's it. That's not a good way to make decisions like that. (laughs) No, it's not. No. But her and Alfred now had two sons together who were about one and three. He must have been so charismatic. Alfred. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Unless she needed a partner real quick for some reason. Yeah. I don't know if she needed a partner or if she was just really taken with Alfred or what happened here. They got married very fast and they had two kids. But surprise, the marriage didn't last. It's not clear exactly what the situation was in 1946 when Rosetta met Marie, but Marie and Alfred would divorce within the next few years. When Rosetta heard Marie sing at this concert she went to, she experienced what Gail Wald calls the acoustic version of Love at First Sight. Okay. Love at First Sound, I guess. Marie apparently says she didn't even notice Rosetta at the concert at all. Marie was the one performing, to be clear, and Rosetta was just in the audience, so this is okay. valid. All right. I mean, so she's having that experience that a lot of people have with their rock star subject. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> but unlike most people, Rosetta pursued this further, and the following Saturday, she turned up on Marie's doorstep with a touring contract. Okay. okay. Yeah. That's bold. Well, it worked, didn't it? Okay. Yeah. By Monday, they were on the road together to Chicago. So she got married this quick, and now she's kind of doing a similar thing. Yeah, yeah. She is doing a similar okay. thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they went to Chicago together, where Rosetta's promoter had already begun advertising them as a duo before Murray had signed the contract. Okay. They also signed a deal with Decca Records as a duo and recorded their first hit together, which is Didn't It Rain, which we listened to at the start. Mm. Oh, yes. According to fellow gospel musician Leroy Croom, quote, Rosetta was at the top of the game when they were together. Didn't It Rain got them nationally recognized as a duo, and they were popular with both black and white audiences. Marie understands that part of the reason Rosetta chose to perform with her, and part of the reason that they were so successful as a duo, was that Marie brought back to Rosetta's career some of the respectability that she had lost by moving into secular music. So Marie had been singing gospel her whole life and never sung secular music. Okay, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and so she brought that back to Rosetta's career. Because their careers depended so much on them looking like respectable church women, it's very difficult for us to uncover for sure what the relationship between Marie and Rosetta was. I hate um, it when we have these episodes. <laughs> yeah, we do have yes. these episodes. <laughs> Look, is this going to be one of those, okay, so was she gay episodes? I'm pretty sure that she was queer. Okay. Okay. Mainly what I mean is that we don't have direct quotes from Maria Rosetta about it. Yeah. Okay. Barney Parks, who was close with Rosetta at the time when she was touring with Marie, described him as being intimate. Various other friends have also said that they were lovers. Oh, okay. Well. Okay. Yeah. 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 Mostly I mean that we don't have it from their own words. More broadly, Rosetta does seem to have been interested in women as well as in men. Another friend said Rosetta had had multiple female loves in her life. 
And Tony Heilbert, who knew her later on in the 1960s, said she would often comment on the attractiveness of women in the audience to him when she was performing. And he says, quote, Rosetta belonged to the whosoever will church, as in whosoever will, let him or her come. <laughs> yes. Okay. But yeah, Rosetta never spoke publicly about her sexuality. And Marie, in later interviews, has actively denied that they were lovers. Yeah, but they're like... But- they're gospel singers. They're like gospel singers yeah. in like the 40s or whatever. So what, what are they going to say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I'm pretty convinced that they yeah. were lovers. They did live together even when they weren't touring. With the money from their success, Rosetta bought a house in Richmond, Virginia, where she, her mother, and Marie all lived. They had a white baby grand piano. They had a shed where they kept all their performing costumes. <laughs> and they had a horse. A horse? A horse. Do you know the horse's name? The horse's name is Margaret. Margaret. I love it. <laughs> yeah. My grandmother's name. <laughs> well, I hope she's proud to share her name with Rosetta Phelps horse. Yeah. Another thing that Rosetta bought with the money they made was a bus. A bus. Like a tour bus? Like a tour bus, yeah. Ah, okay. Tour buses weren't a thing at the moment. Uh, so she invented tour buses? She invented tour buses, yes. That's very cool. The bus had beds where they slept while they were on tour and it had a dressing area at the back and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So Rosetta and Marie would sit at the back and do each other's hair and makeup before shows. Oh, that sounds nice. Mm. And on the side, it said Rosetta Tharp in big letters. Did it say was... Marie Knight? No, it didn't say Marie Knight. I think because Rosetta owned the bus. Okay. It just said okay. Rosetta. Yeah. Yeah. Gordon Stoker, who's a member of the white gospel group The Jordanaires, who toured with Rosetta and later backed Elvis, remembers thinking that the bus was highly desirable. He also <laughs> heard they kept booze in the back, which made it more desirable. Did they? They did drink. I don't know whether they kept booze in their bus, okay. but Rosetta and Marie did drink. Okay. I mean, if you live on a bus and you drink alcohol, you will have alcohol on your bus probably. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably so. So um, what's the deal with, is gospel a particularly black kind of music that then white people start doing because it gets popular? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As, as with many. As with many. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the Jordanaires are white people singing African-American music, okay. basically. So yeah. you mentioned all this. Yeah. So we're going to talk about how Elvis stole yeah. rock and roll from Rosetta? Yeah, we're going to okay. talk about Elvis quite soon. Elvis is coming up. All right. First, what I'm going to talk about is what Gordon notes that did not occur to him at the time was why Rosetta would need to have her own bus. He said later on, I know we would go into the restaurant sometime and get a bag of food and bring it out. But even then, I didn't think about the fact that she couldn't go in that restaurant and eat with us. So the reason she needed a tour bus was because she couldn't stay in hotels. Mm. She couldn't eat in restaurants. She... Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Segregation was here. Mm-hmm. Before they had the bus, sometimes the only place that Rosetta and Marie could find to put them up in a town they were performing was black funeral homes. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Why funeral homes? I'm not entirely clear why it was funeral homes that would put them up, but. I thought you were just going to say that, like, members of the local black community would just be like, stay with me, but no funeral homes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Funeral homes. I'm not clear why, but that was apparently the case. Okay. Um, yeah, other black female musicians who toured remember things like doing their makeup by the light of their car headlights because they weren't given dressing rooms. And at the same time, they're drawing record-breaking crowds. Yeah. Nationally yeah. popular. So they're perfectly happy to come and see these women as entertainment, but they won't eat next to them in a restaurant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Was she also playing for black audiences? Uh, yeah, she did also play for black audiences. There was one theatre, and I haven't got it written down, so I can't remember which theatre it was, which on... A Thursday night had a night that was basically for domestic service workers and stuff like that. Okay. And she'd perform at that. And she okay. was still singing in churches, in okay. black churches. Yeah. But would you describe most of her audience as white? Or is it like hard to tell? I'm not sure. Point? Okay. Yeah, I don't really okay. know. One way that Rosetta and Marie were able to go out and buy food from white establishments and stuff was to take the white bus driver with them as their chaperone. And Marie explains, quote, in the South, a white man and a black woman is the charm. They can get anything they want, but you got to keep your mouth closed. So there's very much this double standard here where, like, a black man could never go out with a white woman and a black woman mm. couldn't go out by herself. But if it's a black woman with a white man, it's considered kind of okay enough that, you know, they'd give them food, but they couldn't come in and sit down, but they would serve them food and stuff like that. What's the presumed relationship between, like, is it clear that he's their employee? No, I think it's presumed. The reverse? To- yeah. Okay. Or it's presumed to be a sexual relationship. And so who was this bus driver? We don't know who okay. the bus driver was anymore. Right. I was just sort of, I don't know. Who was a white man. That's yeah, all like I know. A, a, being a white man at this time in the, like, working for a, 
black woman strikes me as an unusual arrangement. Yeah, like it was definitely a weird arrangement. Yeah, but so I just kind of wonder what he was like and what he was doing. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, Gail Wald says she couldn't find out anything about him when she wrote the biography. So okay. I don't even know his name. Okay. Yeah, and Alfred Miller, who I mentioned earlier from the Brooklyn Church of God and Christ, thinks that Rosetta's very bubbly, flirtatious personality that she was known for was partly like an effort to protect herself from racism yeah. and like basically flirt with white men so they would not be horrible to her. Hmm. But on the other hand, that obviously drew unwanted attention and, you know, inappropriate sexual advances from men. So there's no winning here, basically. Yep. Rosetta herself was never heavily involved with politics or with the civil rights movement. She did occasionally perform at concerts raising money for the NAACP and she also fought against racism in her own personal life. So, in 1950, she made her first national TV appearance, and that was for an all-white studio audience. And the white producers, when she arrived, she discovered they planned her to appear on stage in kind of farm clothing and sitting on hay bales and basically dressed as a farm worker would be. And she always dressed very well when she performed, and she was absolutely appalled by being put in this stereotypical position of black people are farm labourers. The song they were performing was White Christmas, which made this also this, just make no sense aesthetically. Yeah. And uh, one of her backing singers remembers that she had never seen Rosetta as angry as she was when she discovered what these producers expected of her. So what happened? Rosetta ended up being able to choose what clothes she would wear, but they still performed on this farm set. Okay. So they kind of reached a compromise. So, I mean, I'm glad that she didn't have to wear that clothing, but it did make it even more aesthetically <laughs> a mess. Yeah. Yeah, she was like a very well-dressed woman sitting on like a hay cart singing White Christmas. Like, right. nothing about this made sense. Sure. Um, she also circumvented concerns about black and white performers appearing on stage together, for example, when she was touring with the Jordanaires, by simply not telling the venues that her backing group was white. Yeah. <laughs> Gordon Stoker, who was one of the Jordanaires, remembers turning up at the stage door and saying, yep, I'm Rosetta's, like, backing group and the guy at the stage door was kind of like huh no you're a white man you can't be to which i suppose he like (laughs) burst into song until they let him in presumably yeah (laughs) i can't think how else they'd resolve that situation yeah yeah i'm sure that's what happened yeah rosetta also spoke out against other more narrow-minded views of her time so she appeared on a christian radio station talking about venereal disease and telling listeners to see a doctor and get tested Oh, wow. And she not only appeared on Christian radio talking about this, but she tied this in with, like, being a good church member and Mm. kind of protecting your community and looking after yourself. And therefore, you know, it's the right thing to do as a member of the church to get tested and treated for venereal disease. What year is this? Roughly? Um, What decade? It's 40s or 50s. That's super cool. Yeah, like, it was very progressive. I was very surprised by that. Also surprised that a radio station, like... Was like, yeah, sure, we'll have Like, yeah, let's have this happen. (laughs) How does she, um, her church, feel about divorce? Because she's got divorced twice now. I were they for know. real married? Like, they did the ceremony? They were married, married? Mm, okay. Yeah. I don't know how her church feels about divorce. I mean, like, even if you're not super religious in the 40s and 50s, divorce Divorces. is pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So I'd presume not great. Yeah. Yeah. It never came up as being a huge issue, but... All right. I mean, I guess she's already, you know, singing secular music for a while <laughs> and then talking about the neurodisease on the radio, so maybe they have other things to worry about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think divorce was one of the least contentious things she did. Yeah. So, in 1949, while they were performing in Chicago, Marie received a telegram during a performance, which, as Marie recalls it, read, Your mother and your two children were just destroyed in a fire. Oops. Oh, my God. I told her there was going to be death in a fire. Oh, I'd forgotten. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Destroyed is a such an intense verb to use there. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if that is word for word what the telegram said. This is what Marie remembered years and years later. But mm. I mean, I feel like I feel like plausibly that could stick in your mind. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Wow. Well, okay. Yeah. Um, oh, her children. This was apparently during a performance, so she went back on stage and finished a show after having received this telegram. God. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Did she, um, I mean, she, I, she must have been in shock or something, right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Then, so the next day, Marie and Rosetta flew back to New Jersey, where Marie's family had lived together mm-hmm. to look after funeral arrangements and all that. And then um, two days after the funerals, they returned to continue the tour. Ooh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. So when they went back to touring, Rosetta told Marie... I'm going to stick with you, whatever happens. You'll always be my little sister. And as long as anybody on Broadway has got a dime, we're going to survive. So where do we have that quote from? I assume it comes from Marie, because I can't remember, but um, Gail Wald, who wrote Rosetta's biography, did a lot of interviews with Marie, so I assume that comes from Marie. Okay. 
Yeah. I don't I was just thinking about, like, for what audience we were getting Little Sister. Uh, Apparently Mm. she did just call her Little Sister. Okay. I mean, we've talked before about how that's a thing sometimes. Yeah. 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 And there are several, like, reports. Even Rosetta herself saying, oh, yeah, I always called her Little Sister. Okay. Yeah. We've talked Um, before about how in same-sex relationships people will sometimes use terms like Little Sister or Little Brother or anything like that as a way of kind of expressing their intimacy when they can't necessarily use language that would be more telling of what their relationship was. I still feel this is way less weird than calling your partner babe. Yeah, I mean, we do have that. (laughs) Yeah. But soon after this happened, Rosetta and Marie stopped touring together. Rosetta published a rather terse note in the newspaper in late 1949, which reads, I would appreciate your placing an announcement in your newspaper that Madame Marie Knight is no longer associated with Sister Rosetta Tharp. Okay. Sister Rosetta? Yeah, so she... (laughs) Did you become a nun? No, 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 no. She uses sister as her performing name, and basically sister is just a term of respect within her church. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, a woman who is respected will be called sister, or if she's an older woman, she might be called mother. All right. But it's not an official title gained through any kind of study or qualification. All right. So she didn't just become a nun, and you forgot to tell us. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) In later press releases, Marie explained that she wanted to pursue a solo career quote, to gain recognition on her own merits. Okay. We don't know whether there was tension between them at the time, perhaps just caused by the stress that Marie was obviously going through. Yeah. But um, they do remain close throughout their lives. We will see Marie again. And they came back together to tour and record several times. Okay. Before we continue, I also wanted to say another quick word about Studio, which is our sponsor for this episode. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, uh, Studio has really great sound quality in their headphones. They're also very nice looking, very fancy headphones. And they also have a really nice variety of products. So, you know, maybe you like in-ear headphones or over-ear headphones, or maybe you've been wanting to try out wireless headphones. Uh, whatever you're looking for, they'll definitely have something to suit your preferences. So if you go to studio.com, S-U-D-I-O.com, hopefully you'll find something you like. And if you do, you can use the promo code Queer as Fact, all one word, to get 15% off. So um, that was all in 1949. And then in 1951, Rosetta decided to get married again. Oh, no. In this instance, the choice of groom, a man named Russell Morrison, seems to be even more of an afterthought than any man she's married thus far. Do we know anything about this one? We do know a little bit about him. He um he worked kind of in the music industry, but he wasn't a musician himself. Ira Tucker Jr., who I've quoted a couple of times, described him as the slickest man he'd ever known. <laughs> He's apparently very slim, very well-dressed, very slick hair. <laughs> okay. Yep. Sounds like a cartoon character. <laughs> but yeah, Russell didn't appear to be a key factor in this wedding. The key factor was that the wedding took place at Washington, D.C.'s Griffith Stadium, which was a baseball stadium, in front of a crowd of 21,000 paying spectators. What? What? Why? <laughs> That's so weird. It was a publicity stunt. It okay. was a show. Okay. Did she play any music? She did, yeah. Okay. She performed. She okay. performed. So they... A lot of her wedding party was her friends, people like Marie was her maid of honour, and all the people she'd performed with, because those are the people she knew, and after the ceremony itself, they did a concert. Mm. So it was kind of a concert that was incidentally also a wedding. I'm so confused, yeah. She played her electric guitar in her wedding dress, which had, you know, a very long train. It was a very traditional fancy wedding dress, which I couldn't find a photo of, and I'm sad about. That's a shame, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, many of her friends were very surprised that she was marrying Russell, Shirley Feld, the wife of Rosetta's promoter Israel Feld, says it wasn't exactly a love affair, but it was a good way of having a husband and a wedding. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> That's fine. So yeah, on the 3rd of June, 1951, they got married. And it seemed to have been a very weird vibe. So obviously, like we said, it was a concert, but a lot of the crowd also behaved as they would just kind of go into a regular wedding. So people bought wedding gifts like silverware and household oh appliances and stuff like that. Stuff they had at the end of that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what they did with all this stuff. She came out of this with like 4,000 spoons. Yeah, I really don't know. I guess they had to like, on the sly, sell like 100 toasters. <laughs> yeah. I guess they did. I guess they did. That's so weird. Rosetta's dress alone cost $1,500. For comparison, her house in Richmond cost $7,500. Oh, okay. So it's quite an expensive dress. The dress came from Salama's department store in Richmond. The same shop just a year earlier had called the police when Rosetta tried to shop there because they assumed that a black woman with enough money to shop there must be a criminal. 
Yeah, okay. But now they sent a white bridal consultant to drive the dress personally up to Washington, D.C. and help dress Rosetta. Was it just the last time they hadn't heard of Rosetta? And now they have. Yeah, basically. And now they're sucking up to her for her money. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. That's disgusting. It is disgusting, yeah. And Shirley Feld commented that, like, seeing a white woman help a black woman dress at the time was just so unheard of. Yeah. But she was paying $1,500, so they were suddenly willing to do it. Mm. I'm going to play you a little bit of the recording of the wedding ceremony, which you could buy on record at the time. Oh so you can hear how much of a kind of a... You can hear what the vibe of it was, basically. What a weird time. <laughs> yeah. It is a weird time. Rosetta, will you have this man to be thy wedded husband? To live after God's audience in the holy states of a matrimony? Will thou obey him? Serve him? Love him? Keep him in sickness and in health and forsake all others and keep to him only as long as you both should live, your answers do. But yeah, there you go. That was interesting. Yeah, that was how her wedding was. Okay. How that wedding was. That was very, like performative yeah it was very yeah like hearing the crowd screw in the background yeah 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 (laughs) it was weird it was very weird yeah like his tone is very like are you ready (laughs) yeah (laughs) i did read one person which said that um this this wedding was the invention of stadium rock (laughs) which i guess it was it was certainly a concert in a stadium (laughs) incidentally also a wedding yeah yeah, so that was a weird time. Um, the whole performance slash ceremony ended with a fireworks display, including a series of fireworks, which apparently, and I can't picture how this would be, were in the shape of Rosetta playing the guitar. All right, sure. I don't even know how, like, physically you can do that <laughs> if you're not Gandalf. I don't understand fireworks, and I'm not going to pretend that I do. Yeah, no, I don't know. But apparently that happened. Um, speaking to reporters outside her dressing room at the wedding, Rosetta said, I am happier than I've ever been in my life. I don't really trust anything she said to reporters at this event in terms of it being an accurate representation of her mental state. Nor do I. Nor do I. One of the women who performed at Rosetta's wedding was her friend Dolly Lewis. Dolly Lewis was a singer and evangelist and also a psychic healer, incidentally. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, cool. <laughs> who had met Rosetta and Marie while they were touring together. The reason I wanted to mention Dolly is because Alan Bloom, who worked for the Felds, um, Rosetta's promoters who I've mentioned, reports that on the honeymoon tour following Rosetta's wedding, he was sent one day to fetch Rosetta from her hotel room and walked in on Rosetta, Marie, and Dolly having sex. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I tried to follow that up and found nothing more about that. I mean, what else do you want? <laughs> I yeah. mean, I wanted to find when Alan Bloom had said this, but I think the biographer oh, okay. just spoke to Alan Bloom. Okay. After And they were like, hey, and he yeah. was like, I'll come back later? Or like, what? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. That's what I tried to follow up, in yeah, more context. Okay. But he was just like, yeah, I walked in on them. And that occurred. Okay. Yeah. All right, yeah. Yeah, and Dolly and Marie seemed to have, if not had a relationship, been very close After the death of Marie's mother and her children, the Encyclopedia of American Gospel credits Dolly with, quote, perking up Marie. (laughs) Um, A euphemism. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, They went on to live together for many years, and Marie became a minister in the Gates of Prayer Church in New York, which Dolly had founded. Oh, wow. Okay. She founded a church. Yeah. She was a psychic killer. She founded a church. God. We should do an episode on her. Yeah, I assume there's not that much information out there about her. But... I don't think there is, no. no. I think she was, you know, well-known, oh, medium well-known at the time. It has now she was medium well-known. <laughs> Despite the success of Rosetta's wedding as a publicity stunt, her career began to flag after this. It was just because as times changed, her gospel performances started being seen as kind of old-fashioned and outdated. And as a woman who was now middle-aged, it was difficult for her to gain respect from her male colleagues. Leroy Croom, who played guitar with her in the 1950s, said, You know, women, when they're in the power seat, it might be a little bit too bossy and dominating, and I can't deal with that. Well, he was sexist. Yeah. Yeah. Leroy Croom is a sexist man. (laughs) Yeah, and I imagine that Leroy Croom is, like, reasonably representative of what she faced. Similarly, the media was only prepared to have one famous female gospel singer, Mm. and um, Mahalia Jackson, who was about 
I think about 10 years younger than Rosetta, became their new favourite, and they were really determined to play Mahalia and Rosetta off against each other as rivals. Mahalia and Rosetta were actually friends in real life. Yeah, well, we, we still do this. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, like when I read this, I was like, of course this happened. Yeah, like that's the terrible thing about reading about awful stuff in the 20th century is that like... It's it still, still happens. You know, yeah, the thing where, yeah. like, she, as a black woman, went into a department store and they thought she was a criminal. Like, this yeah. still happens to black people today. They get followed around in stores yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, yeah. And this still happens to any yeah. famous women. The media was so determined to make this false competition that years later, when Rosetta died, there were these rumours that Mahalia had refused to attend Rosetta's funeral. Mahalia died two years before Rosetta did. Well, I mean, I guess she did. <laughs> so I guess she did not she attend She very funeral. definitively did, did not. not come to that funeral. Yeah. Did Rosetta go to her funeral? I'd assume so, but okay. I'm not sure. I don't know. It'd be funny if the newspapers were like, they refused to go to each other's funerals. <laughs> <laughs> so offensive. What awful women. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Rosetta's career wasn't really going very well at this point. In spring 1957, her house in Richmond was repossessed by the bank. Mm. Um, Some of her friends blame Russell for this. He was working as her manager and handling their finances at the time. But it may also actually be that she just wasn't earning enough money to keep that house. I don't know. At the same time that Rosetta's career was going downhill, rock and roll was this new thing that was on the rise. Though, as Rosetta told a reporter in 1957, all this new stuff they call rock and roll, why, I've been playing that for years now. Mm. I mean, true, we have recorded evidence, we heard it before. We heard, <laughs> she had. So in the mid-1950s, strange things happening every day, which we heard before, which Rosetta had recorded 10 years earlier, was rediscovered by a group of young white musicians, including Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash. And they're about to make a lot of money off it. Yeah, they are. So Johnny Cash's daughter says that Rosetta was Johnny Cash's favourite singer. Oh, man. Uh, Gordon Stoker, who we mentioned, sang with Elvis and said, Elvis loved Sister Rosetta Tharp. Not only did he dig her guitar picking, but he dug her singing too. So to give you an idea of her influence on Elvis, I just want to play you a couple of songs. So this is the first recording we have of Elvis, and I just want to give you an example of what Elvis was doing in 1953 in his early career. Evening shadows make me blue when each weary day is through. Yeah, so I just wanted to demonstrate that that's just definitively not rock and roll at this no. point. No, it is not. And then I just wanted to play you some of what Rosetta was doing around the same time. There's a change, change in the season. Don't you know I can plainly see? Yes, I know there's been a change in me. That's what Rosetta was doing around that time. Keep that guitar solo in mind. I'm now going to play you the guitar solo from Blue Suede Shoes, which Elvis bought out in 1956. Oh, no. That's about the time that Elvis and all these other white people discovered Rosetta. Blue Suede Shoes was also written by Carl Perkins, who also cited Rosetta as being one of his favourite artists. very well known for being very uh like for you know dancing and moving around and yeah and whatnot that wasn't said very well but you know what i mean yeah was she also a very lively yeah she like was that? a very lively performer okay. yeah 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 no she definitely was okay so yeah so elvis is like that seems like a nice career i'll take that thanks <laughs> yeah basically that's yeah. exactly what happened elvis right. was like looks good i'll do that and then he did and now he's a massive icon yeah, no one's heard of Rosetta Tharp. Wouldn't it be great if there were Rosetta Tharp impersonators in Vegas instead? <laughs> Do you know that like small Australian town where they were like, we need to like put ourselves on the map somehow, and they started having like an Elvis impersonator festival every year? No, and I, I was happier. What if a Rosetta Tharp? <laughs> anyway, I mean, um, people should show up there and play Rosetta Tharp. They should. Yeah, they should. Let's do it. Um, I can't play the no, guitar. No, we're, we're not the people to do this. Just <laughs> That's other, true. other people should do this. So, as I've mentioned already, what we hear in rock and roll, a lot of it can be traced directly to the Church of God in Christ and the environment that kind of Rosetta was performing in. So, I mentioned how she basically invented lead guitar as a thing. The things you'll hear in rock and roll, like people kind of shouting out to the audience between lines, that also comes straight out of the church and kind of trying to oh, yeah. get audience interaction and. I mean, this yeah, this makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, 
And also improvisation was a very important part of church performances because like we saw, Rosetta was a travelling performer, so you'd often be performing with people you've never performed with before. Yeah. And yeah, that's another thing that exists in rock and roll. So yeah, that's basically where that came from. And then Elvis stole it. So yeah, where Rosetta's career, as I mentioned, was impeded by her being middle-aged, being a black woman, Elvis had no such obstacles. Within 15 years, Rosetta's influence had been all but forgotten. One London reviewer of Rosetta in the 1970s described her as, quote, so rhythmically exciting that when she accompanies herself on guitar, she might be a blacked-up Elvis in drag. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. Ah! Sorry that you had to hear those words. Jesus, oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. God. Oh, it was printed in a newspaper. That was printed in a newspaper. He was like, these are words that I want to put out to the world. Yeah, Yeah, so in 1957, Rosetta was invited to tour Europe, which was a dream that she'd had since she first started recording and she'd mentioned in very early interviews. Possibly inspired by Josephine Baker, who was another black singer we've talked about, who had had a very successful career in Europe. And at the time, in Europe and especially in the UK, there was a growing interest in blues and jazz but many people had never heard African-American people perform this music live. It was something they only knew from listening to records. So when Rosetta arrived, they loved her. Andy Hugenboom, who heard her perform in London, said, Not only were we not used to playing blistering guitar, but we weren't used to a woman playing blistering guitar. She was ripping the wallpaper off, you know. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) What you have to understand is we were only just starting to play electric guitars, and to suddenly hear this kind of booming blues music, you'd think, wow, I must do some of that. So she's playing an electric guitar now? Yeah, she's playing an electric okay. guitar now. Yep. Cool. Is she lying on her back on the floor doing it? Probably sometimes. I mean, we know that she did do this at times, so maybe she is. <laughs> I really want to see video of her. There's a lot of video of her on the internet. Okay. You can definitely see it. We'll put some up on our blog. There was also a political element to this European interest in african-american music john broven who co-founded the uk magazine duke blues said we were part of that generation that saw blacks as oppressed so there was that kind of moralistic approach to it we felt that by supporting the blues we were supporting the civil rights movement well that was a bit of a mixed statement yeah Yeah. and i think it was a bit of a mixed kind of reaction like on the one hand they did want to support the civil rights movement and support these black artists Mm. and in that way support the civil rights movement but on the other hand they had this kind of romanticized idea of that and not rosetta but an earlier black musicians who came to europe and played the electric guitar wouldn't get good reactions from audiences because they were picturing these kind of older sounds of people playing the acoustic guitar and this kind of romanticized idea they had of what a black musician would be Mm. like. One of the women Rosetta sang with does mention she was a white woman. She does mention that she felt uncomfortable, the fact that she was, you know, making a living and just very happily making a living off Mm. singing the music from these people who were being oppressed and music that had come out of their, you know, slavery and ongoing oppression. So it was something that, like, they kind of were aware of and not necessarily dealing with in a way that we would think is 100% correct now, but well-intentioned. But, I mean, when we decide what's an acceptable way to deal with that, like, we have that 50 years of background that they don't. Yeah. We've learned from how they responded to this. Yeah, no, that's true, too. That is true, too. I mean, were musicians like Rosetta, like, a part of that conversation at the time? Like Rosetta and Ottilie talked about the fact that Ottilie was performing black people's music and Rosetta basically said that she liked the way Ottilie performed and she seemed to be happy with that and seemed to really enjoy performing with Ottilie and actively sought out to, like perform with some of these people and yeah. she, like she seems to have had a very good time in europe but i just wanted to mention that yeah, this yeah, wasn't no, like for sure. fine yeah and also obviously there was no segregation in europe which she always lived under in america mm. yeah so that was a good thing rosetta's success in europe led to more success back at home in america by 1960 she was traveling back and forth from europe to america several times a year and Although she wasn't as well known as she had been in the 40s, the 60s were actually her most prolific time for recording. She made back the money she'd kind of been losing. And with Russell and her mother, she was able to buy a new house in Philadelphia. And this time, instead of a horse, she had a dog, (laughs) a white poodle called Chubby. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Chubby Chubby. apparently hated everyone except Rosetta. (laughs) I love him. (laughs) Do we have photos of Chubby? I haven't seen a photo of Chubby, but there might be some. I hope so. Mm-mm. Yeah, I don't know. I want a picture where he's like looking askance at someone in the photo <laughs> and like cuddling up to Rosetta. Chubby just like glaring at the cameraman from Rosetta's arms. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. exactly yeah. what I want. Someone do us fan art. A lot of Rosetta's friends didn't like Russell, who 
she was still married to. Oh, great. And yeah, this guy. Yeah, this guy, because they felt that he was kind of making money off her, mismanaging her money, That's you know, controlling, all this kind of stuff. And they were very happy that Chubby also hated Russell. <laughs> <laughs> I love Chubby. So he's good. <laughs> On a more serious note, in 1968, Rosetta's mother died. Rosetta became quite depressed and cut back on her touring after this happened. And around the same time, Rosetta herself was diagnosed with diabetes. Mm. Rosetta hated doctors and she had to be really bullied by her friends into seeing the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this got quite bad before she did anything about it. And eventually that led to her having to have her leg amputated. Oh. Does her health kind of recover a bit now that she's seeing a doctor or is she just in pretty bad shape? Ah, uh, she's just not in great shape. Really. Okay. Yeah. Ira Tucker Jr. says when she lost that leg, she lost a lot of her passion. Mm. She did continue performing, though, yeah. mostly now in churches. Mm-hmm. Russell really encouraged her to keep performing and kept organizing these shows. And some people have sort of said that he was trying to kind of give her a distraction yeah. and that she was keen to keep doing that. But others have said yeah. that he was still just trying to make money off her, even now she was getting sick. So how does she feel about him at this point? Do we know? She seems to just genuinely have always really liked Russell and be okay. very happy with Russell. So are they just like friends who did a stunt? Or are they romantically involved for real? Or like what? I don't know. We don't really know. know. <laughs> All right. I do not know. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least she's happy. Yeah. Like, yeah. It seems like her friends were always pretty dubious, but she seemed okay and happy with him. And like, knowing that she got divorced twice before yeah you know it seems likely that if this relationship wasn't what she wanted she would get divorced because she's willing to do that yeah um as you brought up before she was a very dynamic performer on stage and now that she couldn't kind of walk around on stage as she had she would hop around or she'd sit down on the stage with her guitar and bounce around instead oh wow do we have footage of that I haven't seen any footage of her after she had her leg amputated, okay. but I think there's a concert from her in 1970 that's recorded, so we might have footage of that, yeah. I'm just yeah. picturing her again, like, lying on her back on the stage, <laughs> just <laughs> going to town. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she was still doing pretty okay in terms of her career. The last recording we have of her is this concert in Copenhagen in 1970, so she was still touring. And in 1973, she was approached by Savoy Records with a recording contract. But on the day that she was supposed to record, the producer came around to her house to take her to the studio and nobody answered the door and he discovered that she'd had a stroke and had been rushed to hospital. And the next day she died on the 8th of October, 1973. She was 58. Oh, that's quite young. Yeah. 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 Mm. She wasn't that old. Marie arranged her funeral. She didn't trust Russell to handle it. And she explains, we lived our lives together. We shared each other while she was alive. I only want to see her buried as the person that she was. And so she did Rosetta's hair and makeup for the funeral, as she would have done when they were touring together, and she looked after all of that. That would have been so intense. Yeah. Very intense, yeah. Yeah, apparently Marie, throughout her life, was still kind of very emotional about her relationship with Rosetta. And um, the pianist who used to play at Dolly Lewis's church says he remembers that when they played songs in church that Marie used to play with Rosetta, Marie would get really emotional, and she'd say, oh, you know, I'm thinking about Rosetta. Oh, mm. I imagine mm. that Rosetta would have been happy that Marie was the one who yeah. got her ready, though. Mm. Yeah, no, I think it's true. So it wasn't a very big funeral. And once again, some friend blamed Russell for skimping on the money, basically. Mm. Well, I, like, I... It would have been really uncomfortable if she also had a gigantic stadium funeral where, like, yeah. people paid for tickets or anything. Yeah, no, no. She had a small church funeral. Yeah. And, but she was also buried in an unmarked grave. What? Yeah, he didn't buy her a gravestone. What? Russell. What the hell? Yeah. That's so messed up. Yeah, and, um... I'm surprised no one stepped in and was like, we need to organize this. Yeah, nobody did. Nobody did. Was um, this a more normal thing then? This just happens sometimes? Or? I don't really know. I'm not sure. She has a gravestone now. So okay. um, the woman who wrote the biography of Rosetta, which I used as my major source for this episode, kind of discovered her just by finding a video of her in the 90s and got really interested in her, wrote a biography and also organized a concert to raise funds for her oh, to have a grave. Nice. And like people like Marie performed at that concert. Yeah. And she now does have a grave. So there. is that where her actual grave is? Or yes. Or is it roughly? So it we, is, we never lost it? We never lost it, no. Okay. So it wasn't marked, but cemetery records had, you know, cemetery okay. maps showing. Oh, which, yeah, okay. Oh, that's good. Yeah, where people yeah, were buried. Good. So her grave is now marked, but it wasn't at the time. And um, Marie also said that Rosetta was buried with her electric guitar, but... Oh, really? 
there are also rumours that Russell sold that electric guitar. So, okay. yeah. I mean, we don't if it know turns which is up true. one day, we'll know, I guess. Yeah. So did she yeah. have, like, a main distinctive guitar? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she had one guitar. Did it look cool, or was it just her guitar? Um, I think it just looked like an electric okay, guitar. that's fair. Yeah. 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 I also wanted to mention that in 2002, there was a tribute album to Rosetta that recorded, and on that album, Marie recorded Didn't It Rain, the first song that she recorded with Rosetta, oh. and she covered both parts herself, so she oh. layered it. With her voice oh, doing both parts. Nice. Yeah. Is Marie alive? Or Marie she passed away? is dead now, okay. but quite recently, I think. Okay. Yeah. She lived to 84. Okay. Okay. That's a good a long one. life. Yeah. And she was already like 10 years younger than Rosetta to start with. Yeah. 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 The day that they held the concert to raise money for Rosetta's grave was January the 11th, and the um, the governor of Pennsylvania was there, and he named January 11th as Rosetta Tharp Day. And um, finally this year, 2018, Rosetta was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, good, because... Oh, yeah, about time. Yeah. yeah. Wow, yeah. that's late as hell, though. When did this... Yeah. When did this... Hall of Fame begin because that's how many years late it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I don't know when this Hall of Fame. Yeah. yeah, I know that Johnny Cash was inducted before Rosetta, and he mentioned Rosetta in his speech when he accepted his award. Okay, as an influence on him, but she was not yet in the All Hall right. of Fame. Well, I'm glad she's there now. Yeah, there's probably a lot more black people who we should put in there. There probably, probably are. Yeah. There probably are. We Let's can keep doing find that. More of them for this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. One thing that I wanted to bring up that I thought of while I was researching Rosetta and just thinking about her sexuality, something that I wanted to have a chat about. I've mentioned Josephine Baker a couple of times in this episode as somebody who was also a prominent black performer around mm. the same time, though Josephine was a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. And um, Josephine and Rosetta had quite similar lives in terms of their sexuality, so they both had several marriages to men that, you know, yeah. kind of appeared just to give them their surname, as you said. <laughs> But also relationships with men that appear to have been long and loving. And they both had relationships with women that they themselves never spoke about, but that other friends have attested to having happened. Yeah. But um, in reading about Josephine, I found that people generally refer to Josephine as being bisexual. And nobody I have ever seen refer to Josephine Baker as a lesbian. Many oh, articles okay. on Rosetta will refer to her as being a secret lesbian or just a lesbian. That's... That's interesting. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what's going on. I mean, does Josephine Baker ever say anything? Although I suppose Rosetta seems to be at least positive about Russell. Yeah, like Rosetta and Russell's relationship seems to have been, from their point of view, good. Rosetta seems to have been happy with Russell. Mm. Yeah, and Josephine, Mm. Josephine was married for a while to a man named Pepito. Yeah. I remember Pepito. Yeah, and Pepito was, according to Josephine's friends, pretty awful and controlling and abused her, but Josephine really, really loved him and was apparently happy in that relationship so we have these kind of comparable experiences yeah yeah i mean is it just maybe that people conceptualize josephine baker in such a way that denying a kind of heterosexual desirability there for her Mm. seems less plausible you know yeah that was kind of what i thought it might be because josephine baker was a sex symbol basically yeah yeah and maybe it just hasn't occurred to people to deny the heterosexual relationships of someone who was a sex symbol, a female sex symbol who appealed to men. Yeah, whereas... they've kind of conflated that, like, men found her desirable with her desire being. Yeah. 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 Which is not to say that she's not bisexual, obviously, but that's possibly the reason why people tend to default to bisexual there rather than Josephine Baker was a secret lesbian. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's probably the explanation. Yeah, I just thought that was weird, and I was wondering what your thoughts were on it. There was also, in the Josephine Baker episode, didn't somebody specifically say that... Um, It was, like, somebody that performed with mm. her that was like, yeah, we all had relationships with women as well as men. You would call it bisexuality now or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was Maud Russell who performed with Josephine when they were quite young, did explicitly say what we did you would call bisexual today. And we Mm. don't have that with Rosetta, though we do have that one man, Tony Heilbert, saying she belonged to the church of, you know, whoever so will let him or her come. I guess it's less of an explicit reference reference to bisexuality but but it's certainly an explicit reference to being like attracted to multiple genders yeah yeah no that's definitely true i guess there's also that kind of image of like we know josephine baker did drugs she like she was in berlin and between the wars 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. We know Josephine Baker did drugs and she had all these affairs and stuff. And I think people kind of put these things together. You know, she did drugs, she drank, she had affairs, she slept with men, she slept with women. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of... What's the word? It's kind of like that sexualizing of bisexuality. Mm. Which makes it easier, therefore, to label somebody who's a sexualized figure as bisexual and somebody who's a pretty, like, conservative... Uh, not conservative. A religious figure, at least. Yeah, somebody who's a more religious... Like a very Christian. Christian figure as mm. just being a lesbian who had... We only know of one female partner. Mm. So, and, no, we and know Dolly. Of, I was going to say, we know of two at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I was wrong. We only know of one long-term female partner. Okay, yeah. So is, like, the bulk of stuff that you saw that's out there about Rosetta Tharp just straight up like, yep, she was a lesbian? Or is there a bunch of stuff that's like, nah, she was straight as well? Most of the things I read either said she was bisexual or she was a lesbian. Okay, that's refreshing. And I'm not saying people didn't say Rosetta Tharp was bisexual. I just found it unusual that nobody said Josephine Bake was a lesbian and, like, a reasonable number of people said Rosetta was. But yeah, I think nobody's really saying she was straight because she was kind of forgotten until Gail Wald wrote this oh, biography okay. and Gail Wald does talk about her relationship with yeah. Mary. Okay. Do you have any closing thoughts on Rosetta before we finish? I like her and I hope that we can do a little bit to make people know that she was good and more good than Elvis. <laughs> good. Yeah. And yeah. her dog was good. And her dog was good. Charlie was good. Um, yeah, I just wanted to end by reading a quote from Rosetta's eulogy, which was given by her friend Roxy Moore. And Roxy said, She started out when the going was rough and when gospel was not very appealing, and the only thing to be gained was a hope of salvation. But she sang in season and out of season. She would sing until you cried, and then she would sing until you danced for joy. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter as Queer as Fact, or you can email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. If you want to listen to more of our episodes, we're on Podbean, iTunes, or wherever else you find your podcasts. If you do find us on iTunes, or if you don't, we'd really appreciate it if you review us and leave us a rating out of five stars. It really helps us to find a wider audience, and if you do leave us a review, we'll also read it out on this podcast. And Eli's about to read us one of those reviews now. So the review is titled A Wonderfully Thoughtful Queer History Podcast, uh, and it's from Annette Tier. I hope I'm pronouncing your username right. <laughs> uh, and they say, I just found Queer as Fact, and I'm so grateful I did. I have been listening to past episodes and so happy. Aww. Queer histories are so often lost and not included by cis straight historians. Hearing the histories of people like me brings comfort and context to our lives now. Aww. Oh, that's nice. I'm glad. The podcast hosts present historical people and events with quality research into their lives and the time in which they lived. They're thoughtful about queer historical context. Their group discussions are deep and entertaining. Thank you all for your work. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. That's really high praise. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to review us. We'll be back on the 22nd of July with our Queer as Fiction episode on the book and recent film Call Me By Your Name. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then.